0: Welcome to Brookfield Perspectives, a podcast from Brookfield that explores how the firm invests in the backbone of the global economy. What do we mean by that? The things that quietly enable your everyday life, like solar panels, warehouses, shipping containers, and data centers. Investing in these critical assets helps support and accelerate the pace of progress in businesses and communities around the world. I'm Lauren Steffi, and I've been writing about investing in financial markets for the better part of three decades. I'll be your guide as we meet the business leaders at one of the world's largest alternative asset managers. In today's episode, you'll get the lay of the land on the real estate industry, what's driving growth, and what the future of the business looks like. My guests today are Brian Kingston, the Chief Executive Officer of Brookfield's Real Estate Business, and Lowell Barron, President and Chief Investment Officer of Brookfield's Real Estate Group. Brian's been with Brookfield for nearly 25 years and Lowell for 18. I kicked off the discussion by asking Brian to give a big picture overview of the real estate space. Brian, I thought maybe you could start us off. Real estate is a very recognizable investment. It sort of touches everybody on a daily basis, whether it's where people live, where they work, where they shop, where they stay on vacation. It's followed pretty closely. Everyone seems to have an opinion about what's happening in the space. But I'm wondering from where you're sitting, what does the investment environment in real estate look like today?
1: I guess it's true. Like everybody owns real estate or interacts with real estate on an almost daily basis, and they think that gives them an informed view on what's happening with real estate, or they certainly have questions about how it impacts them directly. I think for Lola and I, it's a little different, obviously, the way we're spending our time is actually thinking about the investment environment. A lot of times you'll see a beautiful hotel that doesn't necessarily make it a good investment. We're in a period of time right now where I think we have gone through a fair bit of volatility over the last 12 months, but we're pretty excited. Well, you would agree like the next couple of years could be the best investment environment that we've seen possibly since the financial crisis more than 10 years ago. And that was a very good time to be investing. I actually think we're coming into a period of time where the real estate fundamentals are okay occupancies are high, rents are good, we're seeing lots of rent growth, but there's just a lot of people who put on too much debt or paid too high a price for real estate the last couple of years, and they're all going to have to sell at the same time, and fewer buyers around means the pricing should get more attractive.
2: I feel like we see this over and over again because real estate is such a cyclical business, but there's really two cycles that you watch. One is the actual fundamentals of real estate, which is supply and demand, and how much demand is there for specific real estate, what's happening with rents and with occupancies. And then at the same time, there's a separate cycle, which is your capital market cycle. What's happening with capital and its desire to own or to lend on real estate? And we're at that interesting moment in time where the capital market cycle is at a tough period. We're seeing a lot of capital market stress, and yet the actual operating cycle for real estate is actually pretty positive. When you hit those moments, it's sort of rare where you get both of those lines up in that way. It's a really great time to start investing because there's a lot of stress in the system. It allows us to acquire assets for really good value, but at the same time, with a good runway for growth where the operating fundamentals are good and we should be able to create a lot of value in that real estate over time.
0: Well, since you made reference to the cyclical nature of real estate, let me follow up on that. The place we're at now, how does it compare with past cycles?
2: It's a good question. No two cycles are quite exactly the same. They all have similarities, but they're always different. Something creates or starts a down cycle in real estate, and it could be an extraneous event, it could be something geopolitical. Whatever it is, it puts us into a tougher period of time. But what's most important is how deep and how long that cycle is. And always what it is that creates that length or that depth of the cycle is where we are in supply. What I would say is very different today is usually we end up in these longer down cycles because we've oversupplied. Maybe capital was too plentiful. It was too easy to build. And so you saw oversupply in various sectors and various regions around the world. And then in that down cycle, you need to digest all of that. What we're seeing today is we never really got into that point of oversupply. There may be slight pockets, but for the most part across the world, supply has been in check which means that we're probably in for a cycle that's relatively short, and that coming out of it will be pretty positive and pretty long tailwinds for growth.
0: Brian, maybe you want to jump in here, but I'm wondering what impact the pandemic had on what might've been a more
1: traditional cycle in this this frame. I think in a lot of ways, There was a period of time during the pandemic that really interrupted the normal cycle that we were in. And I think as we were coming into 2019, we had decent growth, economy was in pretty good shape. We were starting to see some new supply coming into a lot of these sectors and things was kind of bumbling along like normal. And then you had this huge shock that was very negative. So a lot of businesses slowed down, GDP growth slowed down, lots of fear in the market, et cetera. And that was very quickly then followed by this waterfall of cash And that did the job that it was intended to do, which was really stabilize the economy, and if anything, probably went a little too far. And so then we saw pricing take off, and there was lots of capital around, and lots of freely available debt. And so you started to see new supply picking up a little bit in some of these markets. And then really about a year or so ago, when conditions started to tighten because the Fed started raising rates, that quickly got nipped in the bud. And so that's normally a cycle that you would have seen play out over a much longer period of time, but instead it was compressed into a pretty small period of relatively high activity. We're hearing a lot about distressed
0: debt in commercial real estate and how that's going to affect the health of banks and lenders and that
1: sort of thing. What's your view on that? It's a little like Lowell was talking about. I think a lot of times people tend to assume that all cycles are the same and whatever the problem or the catalyst was for the last cycle, they assume it will be for the next one. And so in 2008, 2009, when we had the global financial crisis, it was really driven by, for real estate anyway, two things. One, excess supply, just a lot of homes getting built. And so the lesson we all learned out of that was supply became much more constrained. And I think for that reason, for the last 15 years, we really have never seen a return to the same kind of supply issues that we saw last time around. The other thing that caused a lot of that distress, though, was a highly leveraged financial system. And obviously, people were very concerned about the bank's viability going forward. And so that's the other lesson that we all learned, the regulators, the banks, and frankly, depositors. So for the last 15 years, the regulatory scrutiny that these banks have been under, the credit standards that they've been underwriting to, the types of loans that they've been making, and importantly, the amount of those loans that they've held on their balance sheet versus syndicating out to other investors, it's dramatically different. And we're in a very different position today than the banks were in 2007, 2008. Their capital ratios are in excellent shape outside of real estate. They really don't have any credit issues to speak of so they can withstand. There will probably be some distress in certain sectors within real estate. And there may even be some credit losses within the banks. But in the context of the $23 trillion of assets that sit in the U.S. banking system today, those losses are going to be very small. So I think people are worried about something we saw last time around, not something that's particularly relevant for this cycle.
2: I agree exactly with what Brian said. This is not going to be something that's catastrophic or overly material to the banking system. We may see some smaller regional banks get into some trouble, but for the most part, across the industry, we'll be in good shape. But what will come out of it still will be plenty of distressed opportunities. And that's going to be really across asset classes. So when we first started heading into this, the assumption was, well, it'll really just be office. And office is a tougher sector in the U.S., so we'll see distress there. The reality is that we're starting to see it already, but there are distressed opportunities across the housing sectors, across logistics. So even the asset classes that were most in favor, pricing got too aggressive. Lending against those assets became very aggressive. And as interest rates moved up... You end up in a position where those assets are very stressed, they can't cover their debt service, and there's significant debt maturities coming over the next couple of years. So when we sit back and think about the opportunity set for investing, that'll create a very robust opportunity set for us for the near term.
0: Since you brought up office space, why don't we talk about that a little bit?
1: Just what you see the current environment being and where things are headed in that sector. It's very difficult. And oftentimes when you're investing dangerous to make really broad generalizations about an overall asset class and office is a great example of that today. We're seeing a dramatic difference in the performance of high quality and non U S office versus lower quality commodity U S office. So the lower quality commodity U S office tends to be what gets a lot of the headlines and then people conflate that with the sector as a whole. I think it's very important to distinguish between the two. In some ways in the U.S., we are in a situation where there is excess supply in office, partly because there has been some dampening of demand there as hiring plans and expansion amongst tech companies has slowed down somewhat. The banking sector as well is occupying less space than it did in the past. So that's disproportionately impacting this older space because in markets like this, we always see tenants pursue a flight to quality. So they want to move into the better buildings. And particularly now coming back from COVID, a key strategy for a lot of these businesses in attracting workers back into the office is giving them a great place to work. One where there's a lot of the sort of natural interaction between people. They're highly amenitized. They're in transportation linked locations. And so that means that office buildings that meet that standard are in high demand right now and in fact are undersupplied. And we're seeing that within our own portfolio. So we have a very high occupancy in our newest buildings. We're hitting record rents in many of the markets around the world, and in fact are undersupplied in that higher quality office space.
2: And I would maybe add to what Brian said, no doubt we're seeing this really large bifurcation that's grown quite a bit between highest quality assets versus the commodity assets. But the other bifurcation, and Brian touched on this, is the U.S. opposed to most of the rest of the world. And while part of that has to do with the stickiness of work from home in the U.S., which we have seen ease up over time, it also has to do with the fact that the U.S. office stock has significantly more inventory than the rest of the world. On average, 60% more square footage per person of office in the U.S. versus the rest of the world. And the office stock in the U.S. is really almost the oldest, over 50 years old on average. So the U.S. started from a weaker place. What we're seeing in most of the rest of the world Number one, work from home never really got that sticky, so people came back very quickly to the office. And number two, you were never dealing with that issue of oversupply. So the health of the office sector and most of the other markets around that world is actually quite good. It's still bifurcated by quality, so the better quality assets, no doubt, are doing the best. But occupancies are high, rents continue to grow, and so the assets in most other places are actually pretty good.
0: Okay. So, Lowell, let me ask you about interest rates, because that's something that always comes up. We're talking about real estate It seems now that we're in an environment where interest rates are likely to be higher for the foreseeable future, at least. How does that impact how you underwrite deals?
2: Yes, it's a great question. It's something that there's no doubt in the real estate business, leverage and the cost of leverage is a really important factor in creating returns. But that being said, where interest rates are today is quite a bit higher than it was over the last couple of years. But from a historical sense, interest rates aren't really that high. They're actually at a place that are, I'd say, not something that gets in the way of earning high real estate returns. It's just a matter of adjusting where one gets those returns from. So what that means today in real estate is focusing on higher yields going in. So we need to have better cash flow yield going into our assets. And we need to be focused on generating growth. We're looking at assets where we can, through our business plans and what we're doing with the operations of our assets, we're generating higher revenues, higher occupancies, we're managing expenses. Oftentimes that means you're renovating and repositioning assets, but you need to be able to generate significant growth in the underlying real estate. The combination of those two things gets you to a very healthy unlevered return. And so you really need to think about unlevered returns in this type of environment. Whereas in an environment where interest rates were quite low, unlevered returns may have been lower, but you still could generate a higher levered return. Today, the unlevered returns on transactions that we're doing are significantly higher than what they were a number of years ago by the order of three to six or 700 basis points. So that's pretty significant.
1: And I think the other thing to remember, the reason why interest rates are modestly higher than they were over the last couple of years is because of the presence of inflation. And owning real estate is an excellent hedge against inflation. So By definition, a higher interest rate environment generally is a pretty good environment for investing in real estate. If you've got high quality real estate where you can grow the rents at or above inflation, 4% interest rates are not that difficult to make good returns in.
2: The other opportunity we haven't really spoken about at all because we've really been focused on real estate equity is real estate credit. We talked about the health of the banking system. While we believe the banking system will remain healthy, there's a lot of regulation and pressure being put on the banking system to curtail how much risk they take when they lend. So whereas banks in the past may have been willing to take 60% loan-to-value or 70% loan-to-value loan loan and underwrite that themselves, we're seeing a lot of pressure on them to reduce that risk. So there are very big opportunities today for private real estate credit to step into that hole that's going to be created and originate very attractive loans with high returns. That's something we're spending a lot of time on and seeing a lot of growth opportunities, as well as a number of our peers are really stepping into that.
0: So I'm going to ask each of you to throw this forward a little bit, talk about what themes you see out there that you find compelling. What are you seeing out there right now that's getting your attention?
2: So when we sit back and take a higher level view of real estate, we really look at what are the themes that will generate long tailwinds of growth for specific parts of real estate. So we really have three main themes we're focused on today. Number one, demographics, and in particular, how demographics are impacting the need for affordable housing. Secondly would be what we're calling deglobalization, but really is a case of supply chain diversification and diversification of manufacturing that's happening around the world. And third would be some of the lasting trends, the new normal that came out of COVID. So just looking at each one of them and demographics, we continue to see higher growth in household formations, which means higher demand for housing. Particularly rental housing is a place we're focused on because the cost to own a home today has become so prohibitive with higher mortgage rates and higher home prices. So we see a long tailwind for growth for rental housing and particularly for more affordable rental housing. As far as deglobalization, we see that impacting very much on e-commerce and on manufacturing. So things like life science and biomanufacturing, logistics, assets around the world. These are asset classes that will continue to have a lot of growth because of the demand from companies to diversify where they hold their inventories and where they create their inventories. And then with some of the lasting trends coming out of COVID, those are impacting people's demands or desires for flexibility, for quality of life, which directly impacts the way... Hotel and leisure assets are being used. So those are sectors as well. We see pretty good growth coming over the next decade.
0: Brian, I'm wondering, are there any things that you're staying away from? Anything you think you should be wary of at this point?
2: I think throughout our history, we've
1: always tried to be a contrarian investor. And what that means is staying open to really any asset classes or different sectors. So there's nothing really that we're avoiding actively, but as Lowell said, there's certain things that we think there's a stronger secular tailwind behind them, and so a lot of the growth is related to housing But we do think there's going to be opportunities as well that are driven by distress and moving in the direction of the markets that others may not be moving in or, or in fact, maybe moving away from. So there may be certain asset classes where the pricing just becomes so attractive because of the turmoil that we're seeing in the market that we may invest. And so I'm thinking of places like needs-based retail or grocery anchored shopping centers. We think those sectors continue to have a solid underpinning of growth and cash flow to them, but the pricing may be very attractive.
0: You guys have already kind of answered this question in detail, but I want to make it super broad and super basic. Given all of these factors, is it a good time to invest in real estate?
2: We really do think we're sitting at a moment in time that's the very beginning of uh, what looks like over the next several years to be a great time to invest in real estate. This is about the opportunity set in front of us that's coming from a real bifurcation in ownership of real estate. There are plenty of owners out there that don't have the right access to capital today that are dealing with debt maturities that are coming, debt service with these higher interest rates that they can't cover, and are in a position where they're going to become forced sellers, and we're seeing it happen already. That has created an opportunity to buy very high-quality assets that are not broken, that are performing, yet... The owner because of that capital market stress is needing to sell and there's not really a lot of competition at this point to acquire assets like that so we can buy high quality assets but buy them at a very attractive basis and in today's environment where you're buying in the face of higher interest rates and higher cap rates You're in a position where it's more likely than not over time over your whole period that we'll end up exiting in a time when the capital markets are much healthier, where capital is flowing into real estate. So you're really just working in a moment where less capital is chasing deals today. That's good for us. When we go to exit, likely is a time when more capital will be chasing those opportunities
1: i think we're really coming into a market or a period of time that plays to our strengths and and really what we've built the business for so we enjoy access to tremendous amounts of capital which as Lowell said means we can move quickly and in large scale which is going to distinguish us from others we've got excellent deep long-term relationships with lenders and banks and other financial institutions which means we'll continue to have access to attractively priced debt and importantly we have over thirty thousand operating people in our business able to run these assets. So in a market environment like we're in now, where it's a little more volatile, things are a little less even in terms of how they're performing, having that operating capability and being a best-in-class operator is really going to distinguish us from simply a buy-and-hold strategy.
2: One thing we should be careful not to underestimate is supply's impact on real estate and whether it is a good time to invest or not. We talked a bit about how in this past cycle, we never saw excess oversupply, which is a positive thing, which is what's going to allow us to come out of the cycle relatively quickly. But even probably more important than that, because debt is less available today, because construction costs have gone up so much, we've seen construction starts fall off a cliff. So over the last couple of quarters, you've seen construction starts for new assets, whether it's industrial assets or multifamily assets, come down 50 to 75%. That's really significant. And what it means is a year or two or three from now, we're going to see very limited deliveries of new assets, which means that existing assets that we own should be able to compete that much more effectively and be able to raise rents in a pretty good environment.
0: Given the fact that this is a cyclical business, what were some things that surprised you the most in the last few years?
2: Yeah, I'd say for me, what's been surprising has been just the relative health of consumers and of companies really across most of the developed markets that we're involved with. If you had told me that interest rates were going to be increased four or 500 basis points over a pretty short period of time, I would have thought that would have a very negative impact on corporate credit and on consumer balance sheets. And yet what we've seen is continued health, which has allowed us to really drive growth in our housing assets, our industrial assets, across our retail. So really across the board, our tenants are able to continue to pay and they're willing to pay for high quality assets as we talked about. So that's been, I'd say to me, probably the most surprising thing.
0: How do you think investors should be looking at the real estate cycle today and over the next five or even 10 years?
2: I think it's been interesting watching as we talk to our partners and how they're experiencing this part of the cycle. You can really see two totally disparate points of view. On the one hand, you see people who get somewhat paralyzed by the moment that we're in, and they see the stress that comes with high interest rates. They're worrying about what about this debt maturity and this asset that's coming? What am I going to do? Capital's not coming back fast enough. Maybe I just can't invest in real estate for a while. And that's definitely a point of view, and we're seeing it. But then on the opposite side, we see many groups that we talk to, our partners that we talk to who recognize that this is what creates the great opportunity. And the fact that others are worried about putting capital to work means it is a great time to put capital to work. So we're seeing it as we're on the road and we're talking to our partners, those who are the most forward-thinking, who can look further into the future, recognize these are the kinds of moments in time you don't want to miss as a real estate investor. And so you really need to put your capital to work and search out the best opportunities and really seize on them at the moment.
0: And what about individual investors? Are they coming around to investing in alternative assets and real estate in particular?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things we've observed over the last 20, 25 years is 20 years ago, a lot of institutional investors were making the shift from the typical 60, 40 equity and bond portfolio to having real assets and alternatives as part of the conversation. And it went from 2% of their portfolio to 5% of their portfolio to 10% to today we're seeing 15 or 20% we're now starting to see private investors and high net worth clients and wealth advisors embarking on the same journey. So many of them today still sit in largely public equity-based portfolios for their retirement accounts, et cetera, but increasingly those advisors and those investors are becoming more sophisticated. They're looking to alternatives and to real assets in particular to help hedge against inflation, to create real long-term predictable cash flows, exactly the same journey that these institutional investors went on. So the kind of products that we're creating are evolving. They generally used to be targeted toward institutional investors. We're now creating many products that are targeted to the high net worth and in private investors, because their needs are exactly the same and they're trying to hedge and invest for exactly the same kind of future. And so we think that's a continued growth area for the business as well, going forward.
0: Thank you guys. This has been a great discussion.
1: Thank you, Lauren. Thank you.
0: That's all for today's episode. Thanks to Brian and Lowell for sharing their perspectives. To hear more from business leaders at Brookfield and beyond, check out our other episodes on decarbonization, deglobalization, and digitalization wherever you listen. And stay tuned for more from Brookfield Perspectives.